Matthew chapter 9, uh, verses 14 through uh, 17. I think it's on page 765 in the black Bibles around the room. I want you to interact with one of those Bibles, if you would, or, or, or fire up the app on your phone. Uh, before we dive into Matthew's gospel, I just want to orient you to, um, to, to this series that we're in. Typically, as a church family, we will preach through books of the Bible, and that is our regular rhythm. And then uh, several times a year, uh, we'll kind of jump off and we'll get into a more topical series. And, and at this time, we're in a topical series called Rhythms of Grace, where we're looking at spiritual formation. What are the practices that we saw Jesus Christ himself do bodily, give himself to, and might we as a people can give ourselves to these same things and then see our, uh, our character and our integrity and our way of life more and more and more conform to the image of Jesus Christ. First Peter chapter 2 verse 11, the apostle Peter is writing in your New Testament to this church that's scattered. Uh, they've lost their homes. They've been put out of their, uh, their, their, their hometowns. They've been scattered abroad. They're suffering under persecution. They're mourning for what was. And Peter exhorts them. He says, my beloved, he's speaking to them as a father to his children, a pastor to them. I urge you, though I know you're sojourners and exiles, I, I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh. These things that you go to to comfort yourself in the midst of mourning and in the midst of suffering and in the midst of great pain, you're looking to comfort yourself. I urge you to abstain from these passions of the flesh, comma, which wage war against your soul. He is asking them to withhold from worshiping something other than God and to devote themselves in wholehearted worship to God, to the Lord Jesus Christ, who has risen from the dead. That's a reality that should that should sit on us. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. So as a church, when we talk about spiritual disciplines or rhythms of our life, they're often in two categories. It's helpful to think about the, the disciplines or spiritual formation in one of two categories. One is our disciplines of engagement and another disciplines of abstinence. So disciplines of engagement are those things that we give ourselves to or those things that we put on and disciplines of abstinence are the things that we put off or withhold ourselves from. So if you look at the bulletin that's in the seat backs in front of you and you turn it over on the back, uh, you'll see that there are just, there are a list of practices mentioned there. You'll see prayer and fasting. You'll see discipling. You'll see celebration, Sabbath, fellowship, service, silence. Prayer is a discipline of engagement where we posture ourselves to hear from the Lord, to speak to him, to spill our guts before him, but also to silence ourselves so that we may hear from him. Fasting, it's a discipline of abstinence where we forego food as a means to devote our attention to God, to attend to, attend to him in prayer. Discipling, it's a discipline of engagement. Celebration, a discipline of engagement. Sabbath, a discipline of abstinence as we put off work for the purpose of rest or we put on rest in engagement. Fellowship is a discipline of engagement. Service, a discipline of engagement. Silence, a discipline of abstinence where we seek to quiet ourselves. So if you're with us this morning, that's every week I just try to give like a little picture, a nugget about spiritual formation, its value. And week upon week upon week at the beginning of my messages, I'm just, I'm trying to form our view of, this, of the spiritual disciplines and these rhythms of God's grace that he's given to us to pursue him. 
Uh, if you're if you're new with us or you weren't with us last weekend, there's a podcast available of last weekend's teaching, which is on fasting, and it's right after the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter six, verses sixteen through eighteen. And I kind of gave a fasting one hundred and one. Uh, what is this discipline of going without food? So I'm just going to try to catch you up. If you weren't with us last week, it's kind of like jumping in halfway through the movie, but I'm going to recap the first part as quickly as I can, and then if you want some more in depth um, understanding. Standing, uh, feel free to listen to that on iTunes or on our website. Uh, three definitions of fasting. Adele Calhoun says, Fasting is the self-denial of normal necessities in order to intentionally attend to God in prayer. So fasting is denying ourselves the normal things that we go to to wake ourselves up and intentionally attend to God in prayer. Fasting is a coupled discipline. When we think of fasting, it always goes hand in hand with prayer. The purpose of fasting is to attend and remind ourselves to pray. If you want to tune up your prayer life, if your prayer life just stinks, like may I suggest to you that fasting is one way to wake up and to engage in your in your life of prayer, your conversational relationship with the Lord who is there and who hears. Donald Whitney says this, fasting is a Christian's voluntary abstinence from food for spiritual purposes. When we see fasting and the record of fasting, whether it's descriptions of what people have done or prescriptions for what we should do, normally the abstinence of food is in view when the scriptures speak of fasting. And then a third definition from Richard Foster who's done significant work on spiritual formation. He says this, fasting is the voluntary denial of a normal function for the sake of intense spiritual activity. So we withhold from something for something. A moment of truth uh, that dawned on me from last weekend's message was, uh, it was so profound to me. It just struck me in my studies of fasting. And I recognized that fasting, going without food or without something that I normally give myself to, it is not an optional Christian discipline. It's an essential Christian discipline. I was really struck by that. In Matthew chapter 6, he begins the chapter in verse 2. He says, when you give, or verse 3, when you give. And then another time, he's going to say, when you give. So he's speaking of giving to those who are impoverished and being a generous people, he, he doesn't say if you give, he says when you give. And then he goes on in his teaching to teach the disciples how to pray through the Lord's Prayer. He doesn't say if you pray, he says when you pray. He'll reiterate that two times in Matthew chapter 6. And then also now in Matthew chapter 6, he'll, he'll work his way down to verse 16 through 18, and he'll say twice again, when you fast, not if you fast, when you fast. And so it just dawned on me, it struck me that fasting is an essential Christian discipline. And so last week, if you were here, you'll remember that I just, I called you right out of the gates. Like, hey, let's, let's put, let's put feet on this right now out of the ground, out of the gates rather, no lunch. How about like, what would you think about fasting from lunch today? I know your belly's rumbling. I know you ran out of the house. You didn't have a lot of breakfast or whatever it was. But now, would you consider going without lunch? And many of you opted in, and then we uh, broke our fast at 5 p.m. when the sun went down, just as a means of trying to put wheels on this, put feet on this right there in the moment. And then I asked you as well to consider fasting and going without breakfast or, uh, or lunch um, later on in the week, another additional day. I said that I was going to do that on Friday. Lo and behold, Friday was Valentine's Day. Didn't realize that. Sorry, baby. No dinner, no lunch. We're fasting, you know. It's like, 
somebody made fun and said it was a, called it a love fast. We're going to have a love fast on Friday. I thought that was pretty funny. So uh, I hope that you engaged in some way last week and just just trying trying this out. And 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 right on the front end, I also want to say if you have a medical necessity where you you need to rely on nutrition, you need to regulate your blood sugar, that it will put you in a bad place to forego food, that there are other means that God has provided for you to fast from. There are other things that you can do that will be significant as well. So this is not a law that we're just putting on you, and now all of a sudden medically you can't do it, and now you just live under this this mountain of shame and guilt. That's not what this is about. The purpose of fasting is foregoing our normal necessities in order to attend to God in prayer. And so there are other ways that you can creatively think about fasting. and don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to fast again today if you're thinking that in the background. But what I do want to call you to, church, is to consider fasting again this week, perhaps breakfast and lunch, and then break it in the evening. Do kind of a daytime fast from when you get up or your last snack at night until um, dinner. I want to call us as a church to, to make space in our schedules to attend to God in prayer. Uh, notice I said I'm going to ask you. I want to ask you. Now, fasting is a voluntary discipline. Uh, Nobody can tell you to fast. The Lord Jesus can, and he does, but I can't. Nobody can spiritually abuse you or from a a position of spiritual authority say, uh, you have to do this, you must do this. Our fasting, uh, we must be willing to fast should we choose to, and open to doing so is an act of worship. So fasting is an act of our own will that's meant to open our hearts to God in worship. And as we fast, we depend upon him for for his strength as we recognize our need. As our bodies are telling us, you need something to survive. You're not doing that. Depend on the Lord. Attend to him in prayer. So last week, you'll also remember, um, I encourage you to fast with a purpose in mind. Anytime you fast, like think through it and fast with a purpose. Like, why am I doing this? What is the purpose of this fast? I want to read a quote from David Mathis in his book, Habits of Grace. He says it like this. He says, fasting isn't merely an act of self-deprivation, but it's a spiritual discipline for seeking more of God's fullness which means we should have a plan for what positive pursuit to undertake in the time that it normally takes us to eat. We spend a good portion of our day with a fork in our hand. One significant part of fasting is the time it creates for prayer and for meditation on God's word. So before diving headlong into a fast, craft a simple plan. Connect it to your purpose for the fast. Each fast should have a specific spiritual purpose. Identify what that is and design a focus to replace your eating time. Without a purpose and a plan, it's not Christian fasting, it's just going hungry. This morning, I want to cover a few different purposes uh, for our fasting. I want to just lay them before you. It's not an exhaustive list. It's just it's some things that I've been considering and thinking that I want to lay before you. And each of these come in the context of devotion. So every one of these purposes for fasting come in the context of devotion. And I'm hoping what happens is that you'll find one of them compelling to employ now and the others that you'll just kind of hold in the back of your mind or put them in your pocket and that they will be of use to you in coming days, months, and years. So I'm going to give you a sneak peek. Here's where we're going. We can fast as an act of longing. 
longing for Jesus, longing for the Spirit, longing for the Father to meet our needs in various ways. A second uh, way that we can fast is uh, as an act of repentance. Another way that we can fast is uh, we can, we, I forgot my point, we can fast for next steps. Uh, what, maybe the Lord is, uh, he's, there's something before us. There's some decision we're trying to make, somewhere we're trying to go. It feels large. We can fast for direction. We can fast for guidance, for next steps. And then last, we can fast as a catalyst for evangelism. We see that example uh, through the apostles. So go with me in your Bible, if you would, to page 764 in the Black Bibles, Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 and 15. I'm just going to read those two verses. Um, and then on the end of those verses, Jesus uses some metaphors to make clear to his original audience what he was saying to them. So what I'm going to set up some context here. Jesus has just healed. He's just cast some demons out of people. He's beginning to reveal his glory among the people that he He's living with. He heals a paralyzed man. Everybody is, they're unsure what to do with all of that. He calls a tax collector named Matthew, the one who wrote this gospel, to be his disciple, which would be very uncanny if you're trying to put together a unified team. He's inviting a traitor into the midst of uh, of his band of disciples. And then John the Baptist, his disciples come up to Jesus and they ask him a question about fasting. And they say this, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom, that's an allusion to Isaiah and this coming Messiah, he's calling himself the bridegroom, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is, taking, is taken away from them. Notice the comma, and then they will fast. Now, Jesus' point here is that fasting is out of place with what his disciples are experiencing in the moment. His disciples are living with him in the moment. Now, whether or not they fully realize that, Jesus has very much realized that, that he, God in the flesh, is with them, and there's not a purpose for them to long that God would be with them. The arrival of the kingdom and the king, this bridegroom, it's a time for rejoicing. And so God with the face on, right there in front of them, he's present with them. And this is a time of celebration, and this is a time of recognition of what is truly at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand, was his message. And so it makes no sense for these disciples to long for more of God's present when he's bodily present right there in front of them. It's far more reasonable, rather, for these disciples to settle themselves down, inhabit their time and their current reality, than to long for a time to come as though God will be more present then. Jesus with a face on right there. Now, a question that we should ask as 21st century readers of this text is, should Christians today still fast? Is this something that we should consider I think the answer, according to Jesus, is yes, when you fast. And he said, when there will be time when I go, and at that time now, my people will fast, my disciples will fast, then they will fast. He's speaking of his death and his resurrection and his ascension and this promise of his second return, that through longing, his people will begin to fast and say, return, Lord Jesus, put things right, Lord. And this is where we find ourselves, Jesus in the flesh, not right here in front of us. He's present, yes. He's present through the Holy Spirit who is with us. And yet, this Jesus who was killed and raised from the dead bodily, 
He promises that he will return and that we will experience him like the first disciples did in the flesh after his return, after, like they did after his resurrection. So like the Pharisees and like John the Baptist's disciples, we too, as we long for God to put things together, we long for his presence, we long to be made whole, we also fast. The Pharisees, they were known to fast two times a week. They they would fast on Tuesdays and Thursdays. It's interesting in the Old Testament that there was only one day commanded in all of the Old Testament, one day in the year when, when his people were to fast. It was on the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement is a Jewish holy day in which Jews would fast and they would pray for forgiveness for the bad things that they have done, their sins, right? There's not a command for the Pharisees to fast twice a week, but Jesus would tell a story in Luke chapter 18 where he would contrast a tax collector, this traitor of the people, and a Pharisee, and they both stood near the temple praying. And then he would recount for these listeners what they were praying and the content of their prayers. And if you know the story, you'll recognize that the the tax collector, he wouldn't even look towards the heavens where he knew the Father to be, but he would see, he beat his breast and he said, he said, Father, have mercy on me, a sinner. But this tax collector stood there, rather this Pharisee stood there proud. And he said, and he just began to, to kind of line out for the Father all of his accomplishments, all of the means for justifying himself. And one of those was that he would fast twice a week. This is something that the Pharisees at the time, uh, not judging all of their hearts, only God can do that. But Jesus depicts here that they looked at their, their regular fasting, probably a daytime fast, which they'd break in the evening, two days a week. They'd look at this fast as a means to justify themselves before God and also to stroke their egos before men. Now, John the Baptist disciples also come up, so they say the Pharisees, you know, they fast, but we also, John's disciples, we fast regularly too. Why do your disciples not fast? Remember, though, if you know uh, much about John the Baptist, his baptism, he was calling Israel to repentance. He was calling the people of God in Jerusalem and in the nation of Israel joined to the nation of Israel to repent, to turn to God, to turn away from their works-based righteousness, and to turn to God in faith. And this is what his message to the Israelites was. That's also what his fasting and what his disciples' fasting was about as well. They were fasting. They were therefore praying that the Israelites, they would repent, they would change their direction, they would change from their self-justification, and they would turn in faith to God. And so John the Baptist's disciples were fasting and asking God to reveal his his Messiah as well. They were longing for the kingdom of God to come in power. It's helpful for us as we think about fasting to use it as a tangible act of longing. We fast as a tangible action of our longing. We long for Jesus Christ. Do we not to mediate his presence to us through the Holy Spirit? Do we not long to be more and more aware of God and his work in the world and his presence and his power within us? We have the Holy Spirit, and yet so many of us are locked in a sense of powerlessness. May I propose to you that fasting is a means for us to attend to God in longing 
to attend to God in prayer. We long for assurance. We long to know that we are forgiven. We long to know that we have been saved from the the wrath of God that is due to all of those who cannot keep his law perfectly. There are many of us that wrestle with assurance of salvation and forgiveness. Assurance that God doesn't just put up with you, but that God likes you. He doesn't just put up with you. He loves the person in your chair. That his love is on you, not based on your love for him, not based on your works for him, not based on your effort for him, but it's based on the fact that he just loves you. He delights in you. He wants you. We long to know that. And so many of us, we live in regular unbelief that that is actually true because we know ourselves to the bottom. And we long also for the Lord Jesus to come, not for the first time, but for the second time. We long for the king to unveil his new creation and continue his work in the world. We long for justice to break into our broken world. We long for murderers and rapists and bullies and the wicked to either repent and change or be dealt with decisively. We long for this, do we not? We long for flourishing for humanity. We long for food in the bellies of those who are starving. We long for this world that we know is askew to be put right. We have this sense of longing. And fasting is a means by which we can just press a little bit more into that longing. We long to keep in step with the Holy Spirit and know how woefully short we fall of keeping in step and staying in tune to the Spirit's voice in our life. We long to live in awareness of the presence of God and also to have victory over our sin and our ways of life that are ungodly. We long to be whole again. We long to be put back together. We long for bodies that don't break down. We long for health. Which brings me also to the subject of repentance. To repent is to feel sincere grief over our sin and to turn to God which results in a changed way of life through a changed object of our worship. And so we can fast as an act of longing, but we can also fast as an act of repentance as well. John the, John the Baptist's disciples, they weren't the only ones who were fasting. They were not the only ones who were fast, whose, whose fasting rather was tied to repentance in your Old Testament. While only one day a year was commanded, there were specific times when the nation of Israel, through her leaders, would call people to, um, to acts of fasting um, for the purpose of repentance. We see it in Ezra. We see it in Nehemiah. We see it in the book of Judges. We see it with Jonah. You probably know Jonah and the story of the, the great fish. He ran from God, but then turned around and went to this uh, ancient city in modern-day Iraq called Nineveh. And he preached to the people, and the people repented. The people turned, and the people mourned, and the people asked the Lord to relent from this disaster that he was about to bring upon them for their wickedness. So fasting as an act of repentance, it's the spiritual equivalent of a citizen before a king who's done wrong and is now begging for their life to be spared. In the same way, as you, as you picture this person before a king begging for their life to be spared, they know that they have done wrong. The justice of God will be carried out on those who refuse to bow the knee to him. And God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is not vengeful or living with flawed temperament. But God, the God of the Bible is authoritative. The God of the Bible is creator. The God of the Bible is holy and pure and perfect in all of his attributes. 
and everyone, everywhere, in all times, at all times, will give an answer to him for their way of life. And so every knee will bend and every knee will bow, willingly or unwillingly, but every knee will bend and will bow to the Creator. Now, if you're wondering what this Father, Son, and Spirit are, are, are each and together, what they're like, one of our earliest descriptions in the Old Testament of God's character and nature is in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. It'll be up on the screen. God is describing his character, his attributes, his nature. He, he says, he, he speaks of himself, and who better to speak of what he is like than him himself? The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. If you're wondering what the God of the Old Testament is like, here it is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands or to the thousandth generation, which will make sense in a moment. He forgives iniquity, wickedness, and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the wickedness of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now look at his goodness given to the thousandth generation and look at his wrath to the third and the fourth, you can see, you, you can you can see the con the contrast between how good his goodness goes and how he relents and how he restrains himself from just pouring his wrath out on generation after generation. In the Old Testament, individuals and nations they would fast before this compassionate God of Israel, not as a way to manipulate him or as a way to serve this egocentric God, but as a way to show their sincerity through the severity of their actions. They wanted to show their sincerity through the How far are they willing to go to just show that they are contrite in heart? It's sort of like the movie equivalent of somebody saying, please don't kill me. You have everything. You can you can take it all. Like please don't. Like it's fasting in some ways is is the recognition that you've done great wrong and that you don't actually receive mercy, but you're begging for it in some ways. Now, uh, I, I speak of wanting to save our own skin, which is usually a concern any time that we find ourselves in trouble. Is it not? We, we, we do. We have self at, at center to some degree. We want to save our own skin. But to fast is an act of repentance. It goes even further than just maybe begging or a promise not to do it again or issuing an apology. Church, I want you to consider this. Consider fasting when you see your own sin and you don't, you're not quite ready to forget about its destructive effects immediately. Consider fasting. You're not fasting to earn God's forgiveness. You're not fasting to earn God's approval. You're actually fasting to be comforted by his acceptance of you, by the mercy that's mediated to us through the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. As we humble ourselves, as we see how we've fallen woefully short of him, what does it look like for us to just forego food as a means to attend to him in prayer? and to continue to lean on him, to continue to depend on him, to not just act like it's not a big deal, but to actually sit in it for a moment and let the weight of the consequence of our sin just hang there for a moment. Not that we would just suffer under more guilt and more shame, but that we would fully, we would more fully realize the goodness of God in Jesus Christ and in offering us mercy. So fast in the moments you're broken. Fast in the moments uh, when you recognize that you have used God's kindness and you have disregarded him. 
fast when you have so hurt those that you love. Our sin against people is always first sin against God. We see this in Psalm 51 as David has just uh, taken a woman who is not his and then had her husband oft, and he's trying to cover it up, and the prophet Nathan comes to him and says, you're the man, you repent. And David recognizes that he has been outed, recognizes that he is guilty before God and in his prayer in Psalm 51 he says against you and you alone have I sinned it's not that he's disregarding his sin against mankind but he recognizes that his sin is first and foremost a sin against his creator who has created them and who has created him so our prayer then becomes Lord relent I've sinned against you by sinning against others by sinning against them Father show mercy to me a sinner like that tax collector prayed Spirit help me overcome this wicked thing that I keep doing and this that I keep going to and that I can't seem to gain control of See we use our bodies to follow him through fasting because our bodies as we go hungry remind us of him and how often we forget him and as we attend to him in prayer, we, we start to recognize that the Holy Spirit whispers to us. He instructs us. He gives us next steps, which is another purpose that we see in the Bible for fasting. Fasting is a means to determine and to kind of sift out before the Lord next steps in life. Look at Acts 13, verses 1 through 4. Go to Acts 13, 1 through 4 in your Bibles, if you would. If you've got the black Bibles in front of you, you can just go to the right. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then you'll see the book of Acts. Go to the big numbers 1, 3, 13 there, and, and I'm just going to read briefly Acts 13, 1 through 4. This is a description. Um, the church is being established. The Apostle Paul has been converted. They're in uh, this central headquarters area in Syria, which is the city of Antioch. Now there were in the church, verse 1 of chapter 13 in Acts, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. There's a man named Barnabas, uh, Simeon, who was called Niger. He was likely from northern Africa, maybe perhaps a, a black man in the early church, which is wonderful to see. Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and this man named Saul, Paul, the Apostle Paul. While they were worshiping the Lord there together, this church together, and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, or Paul, for the work to which I have called them. And then they continued to fast and pray, and after doing so, they lay, this church, they lay their hands on them and commission them and send them off. Look at verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Now, remember, fasting is the self-denial of normal necessities in order to intentionally in, attend to God in prayer. These disciples in Antioch, they were in prayer and fasting and apparently were praying about their next steps. And this Holy Spirit, he would speak to them and he would give them direction. But notice, what were they doing? They were posturing themselves in prayer prayer and fasting. They were quieting themselves. They were, uh, they were, they were uh, intentionally attending to him in prayer. They're active in prayer. They're attentive through their fasting. Imagine what it would be like to be a part of the early church. Just imagine for a moment what it would be like to have no Bible whatsoever. These guys don't have acts. They are acts. They are living this out in the moment. What do you do 
Like you know that 10 to 15 years earlier, the Lord has risen from the dead. There are people among you who have seen him bodily resurrected over the course of 40 days after his resurrection, saw him ascend into the heavens. It's wild for us as modern folks to get our minds around this, but imagine what you have seen, and now you're there with people who have seen the very same thing. A human being has risen from the dead, and we've seen it, and nothing will ever be the same because someone has risen from the dead and he is God and we want to follow him and he's given us the spirit of God who has done incredible things and healed and we have seen miracles among the early church and now we're fasting and we're longing and we're attending to God in prayer and we're asking him for next steps which is what these disciples were doing apparently Paul and Barnabas were a part of this this group and they had sensed some sort of a specific work that God was calling them to and so the church came together in fasting and prayer, asking the Lord to speak, and he did. And then look at Acts chapter 4, uh, 13, 4. Being sent out, commissioned by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. We throw this, uh, the map up on the screen here? I just want to show you what's happening on this screen. This big swath of land on the top is modern-day Turkey. This is the Mediterranean Sea. We're not talking about figurative, imaginative places. We're talking about the earth that we live in today. This is in likely AD, uh, well, it says right here, does it say? It doesn't. It's slipping me right now. AD 46 and 47. So this is likely 10 uh, to 15 years after Jesus' resurrection. Um, They start in Antioch over here, right under that white square, and they follow this this blue line. They sail to Salamis. They, they leave. They get on a ship. They sail there. They visit the Jews in the synagogue there on a Saturday. They begin to proclaim uh, the resurrection of Christ and the word of the gospel to them, and they travel all the way across Cyprus, which is about 100 miles by foot, And then they, in Paphos, this town on the western side of Cyprus, this proconsul, a man named Sergius Paulus, is converted. And disciples are made. The community of God is gathered around the gospel. They set them there. And then they sail up the Mediterranean Sea. And they land in Perga. They again go to synagogues where Jews are. They proclaim the gospel there. They cruise all the way up near the red on the screen to Antioch and Pisidia. They, they over to Iconium by foot, down to Lystra. Paul was stoned there. Not the way that you're stoned in Washington, but the way that you get stoned in the ancient world when you're teaching something that people think is blasphemous. They literally tried to kill him with rocks. He recovered. Uh, They cruised down to Derby. They gather and make disciples there. And then the red line follows their way back through Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, and Pisidia, down to Perga, over to Italia, and then they sail to Antioch. This took them about a year and a half. They don't have a Bible. They don't have a radio. They don't have a cell phone. They don't have postal service. They don't have any means to communicate with the people back in Antioch. They are on their own. This is Paul's first missionary journey. How in the world do you determine next steps? You have to quiet yourself. We have to quiet ourselves and listen for the voice of the Holy Spirit. And one of the ways that we do that, and they did that, either by necessity because they didn't have any food as they were looking for people of peace along the way, they would fast. Or they would just... uh, 
they, they, would, they would set themselves apart for a period of time in order to fast and to attend to the Lord in prayer, to ask that he would reveal people of peace to them. I've got no idea where we're going, but we're listening to you, Lord. We have no idea. Imagine the adventure, the danger, the fear, the comfort as you meet people of peace, as disciples are made, as miracles are done. Imagine living like that day to day, listening, tuning our ears into what the Lord is saying to us through His Spirit. Do you have the guts to follow God like He sent them? Do you have the guts to follow Him, church, the person in your seat? You might be shaking your head or feeling down in your heart. No, no, no. I don't think I do. I don't think I have those kind of guts, but I want to call you out, and I, and I want to call you up, and I want to say this, that you have the same Holy Spirit living in you who lived in them and who empowered them. More than that, we have the revealed Word of God to know His will and to discern His will. We have resources. We're embedded in a community of faith. What does it look like for us to quiet ourselves and to hear and to attend to Him in prayer and to say, I am fearful. I'm racked with fear. Where will I go? To whom will I go to? What do you want me to do? How do you want me to help? How do you want me to pour out my life? Not as a ransom for many. Jesus did that once and for all, but as the servant of many, modeling my Lord Jesus Christ. We are followers of Jesus, and so therefore we can position ourselves to hear from God through prayer and fasting, asking him to do only what he can do. And we can obey him, and we can bear fruit, and we can conclude. Look at what he has done among us as we declare his goodness for the sake of his glory and his people through his gospel. And so that brings me to my last point. Fasting is also not only, it's not only a means for determining next steps, but it's also a means for, uh, a ca to be used as a catalyst for evangelism. Paul and Barnabas and others with them in the church in Antioch, they fasted as an act of evangelism. And essentially their prayer became, open a way for us to declare the good news of Jesus. And you and I know that we have loved ones and we have friends and we have roommates and we have peers and we have fellow students and we have teachers and we have family and we have those in our lives who we desperately or to some degree we want them to meet the real Jesus and be impacted by his power. Do you think that you could begin fasting regularly for those whom you love. The purpose of our fast then becomes, Lord, would you draw them? Lord, would you open their eyes? Would you call them to yourself? Or maybe you have a once-off opportunity to share with someone soon. You know there's something coming to a head. There's a meeting that's coming. What does it look like for you to fast and to ask the Lord for you to open a door, to, to make, to, for himself to open a door for you to be able to proclaim the hope found in Jesus Christ alone? Can you fast in preparation? You can. I can. We can as a church family. Now, here's where I'm going to conclude the message this morning. I want to give you some practical notes on fasting, and I'm going to go quick here. So you can, uh, you'll see a bunch of different things on the screen in just a moment, uh, and you're welcome to take a picture of that if you like. But um, as I go through each of these numbered points, at the very end, I'm going to get to number six, I believe, and that's probably a good time if you just want to screenshot the screen so you can go back and remember what I talked about. Feel free to do it at that time. 
Number one, when we fast, this is a practical application, have a purpose. And the purpose of your fast and our fast can definitely be beyond what I've covered uh, today, what we've covered today. Have a purpose in mind that guides your fast. Now, these are some biblical purposes. These are some things that we see in the record of scriptures for why people fasted. I'm going to go through these quickly. Look, we can fast as a means to strengthen our prayer life. We can fast as a means to seek God's guidance for our next steps. We can fast as a means to express our grief before the Lord. Mourning, perhaps you are suffering great loss. Fasting is a way to attend to him in prayer. Seeking deliver, We can fast to seek deliverance or protection. We can fast to express repentance and our hope of returning to God or our, or our determination to return to him. We can fast as a means to humble ourselves before God, as David did in Psalm 35. We can fast as a means to express concern for the work of God. Maybe that's through ministering to the needs of others. Perhaps you fast for the unborn, or you fast for causes that are near and dear to your heart, whether it's the foster care system or whatever it might be. There's a means to attend to him in prayer for, on behalf of other people, for those struggling uh, wherever they find themselves in life. We can also fast as a means to overcome temptation and dedicate ourselves to God as we follow the Lord's example in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus is used, tempted by uh, Satan in the wilderness. And we can also fast as a means to express our love and our worship to God. It can just simply be an act of devotion. Lord, I want to love you more. I want to fast. I want to remember you consistently throughout my day. So have a purpose, and that can be for sure beyond what we have covered today. Number two, um, have meaningful fasts from things other than food. Fast from the web, fast from uh, media, fast from uh, your phone, fast from sugar, fast from alcohol, fast from sex. Paul says that for married couples in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that perhaps husbands and wives, they, 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 they go without sex for a time for a purpose. What is the purpose that Paul says? It's to devote themselves to prayer and then to come back together again. There are many different ways that we can meaningfully fast. Remember, fasting is the self-denial of normal necessities in order to attend to God in prayer. Number three, fasting, remember this, fasting is voluntary. We choose when to do it, but Jesus himself does expect us to engage fasting as a discipline, as a rhythm of our life. Number four, experiment with fasting. One meal, two meals, three meals. If, if, if fasting is difficult territory for you, start with just one meal. One meal. If, you, if, if you've got a bad history with fasting, you've got something in your past, you've got something that is just, you feel, you feel very fearful of it, start with just one meal. Don't go varsity on day one. Start with one meal. Start there. Or fast from a food item that you're regularly partaking in. And then, and then move to two and move to three. Maybe move to a, a daylight hours fast. Or maybe move to a 24-hour period should you choose. And then additionally, schedule, schedule your prayer. I'm coming back to this on a pretty regular basis. If you want to be a praying person, write it in your notebook. Put it in your phone. Schedule prayer. It is not unholy and unspiritual to schedule prayer. We want it to be spontaneous because we feel like when it's organic and spontaneous, then somehow it's more valuable than if we actually write it into our schedule. But we give our time to the things that are most important in life. So write prayer into your schedule and then augment it with fasting. Strengthen it with fasting. 
Remember this, fasting does not earn your acceptance before the Father. Only Jesus earns us acceptance before the Father. And it's through faith in him that we are justified. Your fasting does not make you an approved son or daughter. You are not more loved in 50 years of following Christ than you are right in this moment. Our obedience is the outflow of God's acceptance of us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember um, the question in New City Catechism that I asked at the beginning. What does the law of God require? Question 7. The law of God in the Old Testament requires personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. That we love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. What God forbids should never be done, and what God commands should always be done. Now, the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 7, verse 25 through chapter 8, verse 4. He says, who? And he's recognizing this battle of the flesh and the spirit. And he's saying, he's saying, who is going to rescue me from this body of death? I can't do what I want to do, and I don't, and I, and I don't do, or I do what I don't want to do. I don't know how, if I just said that right or not. Got it all tangled up in my mind. Anyways, he's recognizing that he's a mixed bag. He's, he's back and forth. He can't seem to make a way for himself. He certainly can't justify himself perfectly before a holy God. And then he says, who's going to save me from this body of death? And then immediately he says, thanks be to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then Romans 8.1, there, there, there is therefore now no condemnation. How much? None. No. Zilch. There is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you and I free in Christ Jesus from the law that reveals our sin and that brings death. For God, through Christ, he's done with the law, weakened by our flesh, couldn't do it, couldn't make us perfect, it couldn't help us get our act together. And so, by sending his own son in the likeness of our flesh and humanity and for our sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, put an end to it through the Lord Jesus Christ in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And we walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, and we do so by faith. We are not justified by our works. We are justified by the work of Jesus Christ. End statement. Hard and fast. Heart stop. It is Christ who saves us, and we can attend to him and draw near to him through fasting and disciplines like prayer and silence and solitude and other things. Would you pray with me?